Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we are now deep into our fourth season, Haunted New Orleans. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we suggest you start listening to the Haunted New Orleans season with episode 53, which is where this season begins and where we set the stage for the many dark tales ahead. In each episode of the season, we'll be revealing the history, mystery, spirits, scandals, and sins of New Orleans, a city we believe is the most haunted in America. So hoist the mainsail, sharpen your broadsword, and raise the black flag for the next episode of Haunted New Orleans. In January 1815, the final battle of the War of 1812 was fought in New Orleans at what was then a backwater, disease-ridden den of iniquity that had only been the property of the United States for a handful of years. New Orleans had been run by the French, then the Spanish, French again, and then became part of an American territory, thanks to President Thomas Jefferson. It was a city born in sin. Most of the initial settlers had been convicts and prostitutes flushed from the Paris jails and sent to the steamy, mosquito-ridden swamps of Louisiana. And it maintained that reputation with bordellos, saloons, and a reputation as the wickedest city in the New World. It was a haven for lawbreakers, outlaws, gamblers, 'er ne'er-do-wells, and whores and respectable citizens. Well, they seemed few and far between. When the War of 1812 broke out against the British, the same people we had just won our freedom from a couple of decades before, it looked as though this was one we were sure to lose. America was outmanned, outgunned, and the British had rallied Native American forces against settlers in the western regions, resulting in bloody massacres. Our struggling Navy was nearly broken by superior British commanders, fresh from battles with French forces, and even the White House in Washington was burned to the ground. American commanders feared for the safety of New Orleans, which had become a major port for the country. New Orleans was a melting pot of different cultures, most of whom didn't get along with one another. But if there was one thing that could bring together these opposing forces, the Catholic Creoles, the free people of color, and Protestant Americans, it was a threat from the British. The people in New Orleans who still considered themselves mostly Spanish or French had always been governed by enemies of Britain. As for the Americans, the bitterness from hard-won independence they'd achieved from England still lingered in recent memory. The last thing they wanted was to fall under the thumb of the British once again. With this in mind, the Creoles and the Americans began to rally together. The coming battle would be a heroic event in the city's history if they managed to survive it. Well, no one would have guessed that one of the greatest heroes in the fight to save New Orleans would be a pirate. What most of us think of as piracy, practiced during its golden age by characters like Blackbeard, came to an end in the Gulf of Mexico in the middle 1700s. The seas had been swept clean of bloodthirsty buccaneers by the combined might of England, France, and Spain. However, the commerce of the Gulf continued to be plundered under flimsy legal conditions by what were called privateers. These were armed ships whose captains carried letters issued by nations at war, giving them the authority to capture vessels that flew an enemy flag. Under maritime law, privateers could keep both a captured ship and its cargo, provided he brought the prize into the port of a country to which he claimed allegiance, 
and presented it to an admiralty court. He could then sell the loot however he pleased. But really, no matter what they called themselves, they were still pirates. In the early 1800s, the Gulf of Mexico swarmed with pirates, uh, I mean privateers, and most of which operated safely within international law by flying the flag of the Republic of Cartagena. This is now one of the principal seaports of Colombia, but in those days, it had revolted against the rule of Spain. The privateers that flew the Republic's flag were supposed to prey only on Spanish ships, but really most attacked every ship they came upon, regardless of its nationality. With the crew of the captured ship murdered, its stores looted, and the ship itself scuttled, well, dead men tell no tales. After the United States took over New Orleans, the city became a principal market for pirates and privateers. Instead of making a long voyage to Cartagena for an admiralty hearing, they could just bring their prizes directly to New Orleans. Of course, since they couldn't clear their illegal goods through the customs house, they had to smuggle them to shore. Smuggling was dangerous and required quite a bit of planning and organization, so the privateers realized the need for a base that was close to New Orleans and yet inaccessible enough that it would be safe from the nuisance of warships. They found such a place about 60 miles south of the city in the Bay of Barataria, a large unknown spot that was separated from the Gulf by the islands Grand Terre and Grand Isle. A passage that was deep enough for seagoing vessels flowed between the islands as long as the pilots knew the channel. Now on Grand Terre, the privateers established a headquarters and soon began supplying the merchants of New Orleans with contraband goods of every kind. The makeshift settlement became a rendezvous point for not only pirates and smugglers, but criminals and adventurers of every kind. Fights, robberies, and fatal skirmishes over the division of spoils became commonplace. And it wasn't long before the New Orleans merchants began to fear visiting the island and having any sort of dealings with the privateers. Business at Grand Terre was shabbily conducted with every man for himself, and it soon became clear that a leader was needed to take matters into hand and bring order out of the chaos. And the man who stepped into that role was Jean Lafitte. Little is known about Lafitte's past. According to numerous sources, he appears to have been born in about a dozen different places in France and to have died in as many different places in the West Indies. Most likely, he was born in Bordeaux, France in 1780 and first established himself with his brother Pierre in New Orleans around 1806. They established a blacksmith shop at St. Philip Street and a store on Royal Street. Using both of these places as a front, they operated for two years as smugglers' agents. During this time, the brothers prospered and entertained lavishly at their mansion at Bourbon and St. Philip Streets. Jean Lafitte became well-known among the businessmen and merchants of the city. He was a man of great personal charm and spoke English, French, Spanish, and Italian fluently. Although his profits were great and life in New Orleans was pleasant, Lafitte became dissatisfied with the way the smugglers and privateers conducted their affairs. He saw the need for a guiding hand in their business, which in turn would bring even greater profits to the brothers Lafitte. While Lafitte's unhappiness with the situation increased on January 1st, 1808, when a new element was added to the smugglers' operations. On that date, a law went into effect that banned the further importation of slaves into the United States. Throughout the South, the price of slaves rose immediately and plantation owners were soon glad to pay from $800 to $1,000 for an able-bodied man who could be bought for $20 on the African coast over $300 in Cuba, which was now the headquarters of the legal slave trade. Slaves had suddenly became very important pieces of merchandise. 
and smuggling them into Louisiana had become immensely profitable. Well, Lafitte's decision about what to do with the smugglers was made for him when he learned that a highly profitable slave ship had been seized by pirates and was on its way to Grand Terre. Lafitte left his business in New Orleans in the hands of his brother and went out to Barataria Bay, a two-day journey by boat through the swamps. He met with all of the various leaders of the cutthroats on the island over the course of the next week, and slowly, he won them over. His arguments were so persuasive that they appointed him the leader of the newly organized band. Lafitte ruled Grand Terre and Barataria Bay for almost a decade, and only once was his captaincy questioned. When one of his captains rebelled at the idea of only attacking Spanish ships during a certain period, he tried to start a revolt against Lafitte's leadership. It turned out to be a short-lived rebellion. Lafitte approached the man and without a word, drew a pistol and shot him dead. Lafitte was a pirate smuggler and a thief, but he was also a genius at organization. Within an amazingly short time, he had united the warring factions of Grand Terre and made their business a sound one. They sailed where and when he directed, coolly walked away with stolen plunder, and placed it into his hands for disposal. More and more pirates joined up with Lafitte, and a year after coming to Grand Terre, he had a thousand men at his disposal. Fifty of his ships, all flying the flag of Cartagena, swept the shipping lanes of the Gulf and came directly to Barataria Bay with their prizes. Meanwhile, Lafitte improved the conditions at Grand Terre, building thatched cottages for the pirates and their women and establishing gambling houses, cafes, and brothels. Enormous warehouses for the stolen plunder were erected. In the center of the colony, Lafitte built himself a mansion of brick and stone, filled with the finest furniture, linens, and carpets, all stolen by his band of pirates. There he entertained merchants and businessmen from New Orleans, plantation owners, and slave traders, all of whom were delighted by the luxury in which he lived. Lafitte's business was so efficient that by 1813, practically all the stores in New Orleans were being stocked with his smuggled merchandise, and the legitimate commerce of the city began to suffer. It was clear that within a few years, Lafitte would have a monopoly on most of Louisiana's trade. Government officials made a few half-hearted attempts to damage the Barataria Bay operations with a few inconsequential seizures, but this only served to increase Lafitte's prestige. When Governor W.C.C. Claiborne issued a proclamation in early 18th denouncing the Barataria men as pirates and warning the people of New Orleans to have no further dealings with them, Lafitte made a point of returning to the city. He and Pierre began a season of entertainment, securing the attendance of the most prominent merchants at their dinners and parties. They appeared in local restaurants, surrounded by influential friends, and boldly announced in the newspapers the dates of upcoming sales of merchandise. A few months later, Governor Claiborne issued another proclamation, which was posted in prominent places in New Orleans, offering a reward of $500 for the arrest of Jean Lafitte. Lafitte responded by issuing a proclamation of his own, also posted in prominent locations in the city, and it offered a $1,500 reward for the arrest of Governor Claiborne and his delivery to Grand Terre. Outraged, Claiborne filed charges against Lafitte and convinced a grand jury to return indictments against him and the other men of Barataria Bay, charging them with piracy. Pierre Lafitte, indicted with aiding and abetting his brother, was arrested and jailed. John immediately retained two of New Orleans' most distinguished attorneys, John R. Grimes and Edward Livingston, and offered them $20,000 each to defend his brother. 
Grimes was the district attorney of Orleans Parish at the time, and he resigned from office in order to collect the fee. When his successor stated in open court that Grimes had been, quote, seduced by the blood-stained gold of pirates, Grimes challenged him to a duel. During the altercation, Grimes shot him through the hip and the man was crippled for life. Unfortunately, the combined skills of the two attorneys failed to get the indictment against Pierre dismissed, and he languished in jail for several months. He was eventually freed during a mysterious, yeah, mysterious, jailbreak. Nevertheless, Jean Lafitte agreed to pay the attorneys the large fee that he had promised. He invited them to Grand Terre so that he could pay them in person, and while Grimes readily accepted, Livingston declined, authorizing Grimes to collect his portion of the fee at a commission of 10%. Grimes received his money on the day that he arrived at the pirate stronghold, but he lingered on the island, seduced by Lafitte's hospitality, and of course by the gambling and women that were offered to him. By the end of three days, he had gambled away all the money he'd earned as well as the 10% commission that he'd been given by Livingston. Lafitte may have been at the height of his power during this period, but his popularity was beginning to wane. Even those merchants who bought goods from him began to fear that his monopoly on trade in the region would eventually hurt them. In addition, the national government, worrying about the successes of the British during the War of 1812, at last listened to Governor Claiborne and sent a military force against the pirates at Barataria Bay. This expedition, consisting of six gunboats and several small but heavily armed vessels, sailed from New Orleans in September 1814. The pirates were taken by surprise, and after a brief battle, the settlement at Grand Terre was destroyed, and the U.S. Navy captured nine ships and nearly 100 prisoners. Jean and Pierre Lafitte, along with several hundred of the other men, escaped into the bayous. But fate was in favor of Lafitte's fortunes. A few days before the U.S. Navy attacked Grand Terre, an English ship appeared in Barataria Bay. After a long conversation with Lafitte, the British commander offered the pirate $30,000 in gold and a captaincy in the British Navy if he would enlist his men on the side of the English during an attack on New Orleans. Lafitte asked for time to consider the offer and learned what he could of the British plans. After they sailed away, Lafitte sent a full account of what had occurred to Governor Claiborne. He offered to join with the American Navy and aid in repelling the invasion. In return, he asked for he and his brother's crimes to be pardoned. Claiborne called a meeting with military officials. Putting aside his previous feelings about the pirate, he told them that he believed Lafitte's story was true, and he urged them to accept the offer and recall the next expedition against Barataria Bay. But the military refused to go along with it, and a less successful second attack followed. Lafitte, however, fled to New Orleans, where, surprisingly, he renewed his offer to the governor. This time, the military was not so quick to dismiss the idea. You see, the city had been in chaos when General Andrew Jackson had arrived a short time earlier. He arrived in New Orleans just before the holidays, only to be confined to his bed with dysentery and a high fever. From his sickbed, he still managed to organize the defense of the city. He imposed martial law on New Orleans and enlisted the aid of every breathing human being who could fire a gun. He accepted the assistance of regiments of free men of color, Kentuckians who came down river on flatboats, Choctaw Indians, and finally, help from the pirate brigades led by Jean Lafitte. The city was virtually defenseless against the British. Word reached New Orleans that the Capitol and the White House in Washington had been burned and that President James Madison was unable to raise an army to assist New Orleans because the United States Treasury was empty. All that Jackson had to repel the invasion was a rabble army, but it, well, it turned out to be more than enough. 
The British forces attacked on December 23rd, 1814, and although fresh from defeating Napoleon, they were no match for the ragtag American troops. The fighting raged back and forth for several bitterly cold days between Christmas and New Year's. The British continued to be reinforced with fresh troops until they greatly outnumbered the American forces in New Orleans. On New Year's Day, the British attacked the city's hastily erected defenses, only to be driven back again. The fighting stalled out for a week, and then on January 8th, the final battle took place on the muddy and mist-covered grounds of Chalmette Plantation. The Americans huddled behind bales of straw and cotton and soon began to hear the sounds of bagpipes and drums in the fog. The colors of the Duchess of York's light dragoons and the tartans of the 93rd Highlanders appeared across the field. The British troops began what seemed an endless march toward the American line, moving in tight, efficient lines. But the experienced British soldiers were no match for the men of New Orleans. The militia troops and the pirates savaged the British lines without mercy. By later that day, Jackson's army had prevailed with only 15 men dead and 40 wounded. The British, they weren't so lucky. The carnage on their side consisted of 858 dead and about 2,500 men wounded or missing. The invaders had been beaten and withdrew from American soil. Ironically though, Soon after the battle, news reached the city that the British had signed a peace treaty at Ghent on Christmas Eve, two weeks before the Battle of New Orleans. The war had ended before the final battle had even been fought. The Battle of New Orleans turned two men into heroes. One would become president and the other, well, he would go back to being a pirate. Lafitte and his men received the pardons they were promised. Governor Claiborne and General Jackson had sent letters to President Madison to notify him of the brave conduct of the pirates during the fighting. On February 6, 1815, the president signed a free and full pardon to any of the pirates who could produce a statement from Governor Claiborne that they took part in the battle. The brothers Lafitte, along with scores of smugglers and pirates, soon became free citizens of the United States. There are many who believe that in the wake of the battle, Lafitte planned to go straight and become a legitimate businessman of New Orleans. But an incident occurred at the Great Victory Ball that was held to celebrate the battle that changed his mind. During the party, Lafitte approached a group that included Governor Claiborne, Andrew Jackson, and several other military men. Claiborne and Jackson greeted him warmly, but the other men ignored him. In fact, when the governor introduced him to one of the generals, the man hesitated before shaking his hand. Lafitte understood the situation immediately. He introduced himself to the military man as Lafitte the Pirate, and he knew that's what he would always be. He would never be welcome in New Orleans business and society. So he and Pierre went back to what they did best, being pirates. For the next three years, the brothers roamed the Gulf of Mexico, searching for a new home and occasionally seizing a Spanish ship and smuggling the plunder into New Orleans. Eventually, in 1816, they founded a small colony off the coast of Texas that came to be known as Galvez Town, later Galveston. There he prospered for several years, building himself a grand home and a new brigade of pirates. Lafitte attempted to gain respect and protection from the governments of Mexico, Texas, and even Washington, D.C., but his schemes never succeeded. Galvez Town never managed to develop into the orderly community that he had founded on Grand Terre. It became not only a refuge for pirates and privateers, but for criminals and fugitives from all over the region. Instead of preying on vessels that were specified in the letters from Cartagena, they resorted to outright piracy and attacked any vessel they found, regardless of what flag it was flying. 
Early in September 1819, Lafitte purchased a schooner in New Orleans that he dubbed the Bravo. He instructed his men to sail the ship to Galvez Town. Although the vessel carried no privateer's commission, she attacked a Spanish merchant vessel in the Gulf. The pirates were still looting the ship when an American cutter, the Alabama, appeared and captured them after a short fight. The ship and the pirates were taken back to New Orleans. All of the men were tried, found guilty, and sentenced to hang. Lafitte tried to find legal aid for his men. Then, joined by old friends and many planters who feared the loss of profitable business and slaves and other contraband, caused such a stir that the authorities ordered out the militia to prevent a possible attack on the prison. In the end, though, all the legal maneuvering and threats of violence accomplished nothing. The men were hung as pirates. The beginning of the end of Lafitte's headquarters in Galvez Town came in late 1820, when a pirate named Brown plundered an American vessel in Matagorda Bay. Brown's trail led straight back to Lafitte's colony. Although Lafitte tried Brown and hanged him on the island in the harbor, the government decided that Galvez Town had to be destroyed. Early in 1821, an American warship anchored off the coast and Lafitte was given three months to abandon the settlement. The warship returned in May and found Lafitte supervising the destruction of his own colony. The settlement was burned and Lafitte sailed away in three ships, two of which abandoned him a few days later when he refused to attack a convoy of Spanish merchant ships. What became of Lafitte after that is officially unknown. Some believe that he died of fever in the Yucatan in 1826. Others say he was wounded in a battle in the Gulf of Honduras and was buried at sea. In the 1940s, a journal surfaced that allegedly belonged to Lafitte. It was printed on the right age of paper, mentioned all the right people, and had the right signature, but no one knows if it was authentic. According to the journal, Lafitte left Galveston and changed his name to John Laughlin. He settled in, get this, Alton, Illinois, and lived there until his death in 1854. There are some who believe that Lafitte is buried on a piece of land along Hapalo Road where there was once an old Catholic cemetery whose stones are all gone. But who knows if this is true? Jean Lafitte's death remains today just as mysterious as his life. The name Jean Lafitte remains one of legend in New Orleans, even now, more than 200 years later. His name can be found in many places, but his ghost, legend has it, can only be found in two. One of them was allegedly once owned by Jean and his brother Pierre, and has a reputation today as one of America's oldest bars. The story says the building was opened by the brothers Lafitte in 1809, when they needed a place from which to sell their plundered goods. They purchased land at the corner of Bourbon and St. Philip Street and started a blacksmith shop, although no horse was ever shod there. Instead, liquor, smuggled slaves, and ill-gotten goods were in great supply. The law overlooked this operation for several years until the Lafitte's got onto the governor's bad side, a relationship that was repaired when the pirates were needed to defend the city in 1814. Even without the ghosts and what may be its dubious history, and by that I mean there is no authentic evidence that Lafitte ever owned the place, but, you know, why let the truth get in the way of a good story? The blacksmith shop is a unique building in the city. 
It's one of the only remaining French-style survivors from before the fires of 1788 and 1794, because the French Quarter itself, as we learned in an earlier episode, is actually of Spanish design. Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop is a must-visit location today for anyone with an interest in history and hauntings. The only electric lights in the building are behind the bar, and the rest of the place is illuminated by candles. The rickety wooden tables, candles, firelight, and the exposed brick and beam give the place its charm and make it easy to believe there may be a ghost or two lingering there. Well, who are the spirits? Well, one is believed to be the ghost of a woman who committed suicide on the upper floor many years ago. No documentation of this ghost exists, but she has often been encountered by people who say she's approached them and quietly whispers in their ears. Or perhaps the ghost is that of previous owner Tom Kaplinger, who gave away countless numbers of free drinks in the 1950s. He had a generous pour with all his friends like playwright Tennessee Williams, and Tom left a legacy of extensive debt after his death and, well, maybe a ghostly one too. Then, of course, there is Jean Lafitte himself, who doesn't let his death keep him from returning to his old blacksmith shop. Staff and guests have cited what they believe to be Lafitte's ghost on numerous occasions. Usually a full-bodied apparition of a man in period clothing is reported around the fireplace. The figure tends to make eye contact before disappearing into thin air. Is it Lafitte? If so, then he certainly enjoys Bourbon Street as much as tourists to the city today do, because this is not the only bar on that street in which a specter can be found. On the corner of Bourbon and Bienville, in the French Quarter, stands a historic building that has played host to the likes of Mark Twain, Walt Whitman, Oscar Wilde, William Thackeray, Aleister Crowley, and others. And while these historic personages may not be lingering at the old absinthe house, the ghost of Jean Lafitte reportedly is. Well, truth or legend? That's an interesting question, for the old absinthe house does have a lot of connections to New Orleans history, and sometimes in this city, it's hard to tell where the truth ends and legend begins. Built in 1806 by Pedro Font and Francisco Giancadella, it began as a warehouse for imported foods, wines, and cheeses from Europe. They also operated a retail store, a tavern, and a restaurant. Legend has it that the building also played a role in the Lafitte brothers' smuggling operations. There are rumors of tunnels that have been found under the structure which may have played a role in the arrival of some of the fine goods that were sold by Font and Giancadella. Jean Lafitte is said to have been so comfortable here, knowing he was among friends, that this was the place where he met with General Andrew Jackson to plan the defense of the city just prior to the Battle of New Orleans. This may be, some say, why his ghost still lingers here. After Giancadella's death, his widow and Pedro Font returned to Spain and left the operation to be run by relatives. By the 1830s, the import business was gone and the building had been turned into a shoe store. It later became a grocery store, a coffee house, and then a tavern. In 1870, Cayetano Ferrer, a Spaniard from Barcelona, came to work there as a bartender. Four years later, he took over the lease and changed the name to the Absinthe Room. It's believed that he began producing the first absinthe in America, distilling the green concoction in a way that it could not be duplicated by other bars in the city. He gained national notoriety and began attracting writers, artists, and famous people to his doors. Absinthe is historically described as a distilled, highly alcoholic drink that is so strong it's commonly diluted with water when consumed. It's anise-flavored, like black licorice, and derives from flowers and leaves of the wormwood plant. 
Traditionally, it has a light green color, was commonly referred to in literature as La Faire Verte, the Green Fairy. It achieved great popularity in late 19th and early 20th century France, particularly among the Parisian artists and writers. Due in part to its association with Bohemian culture, absinthe was opposed by social conservatives and prohibitionists and portrayed as a dangerously addictive, psychoactive drug. And all of the notorious bad men of the day, including Charles Baudelaire, Arthur Rimbaud, Toulouse-Lautrec, Vincent van Gogh, Oscar Wilde, and Aleister Crowley were connected to the drink. By 1915, it was banned in the United States and throughout most of Europe. It would not begin to be produced again legally until the late 1990s. However, it is not and never has been a hallucinogenic. That propaganda was concocted by French winemakers who feared the popularity of absinthe would cut into their business. This is what led to it being banned in the United States, and people still believe it today, even though it's not true. It can, however, get you very drunk. Trust me on this. The precise origin of absinthe is unclear. The medical use of wormwood dates back to ancient Egypt, but it first began to produce as an elixir by a group of nuns in France in the late 1700s. A French doctor obtained the formula from the sisters and began to distill it as an alcoholic beverage. Absinthe popularity grew steadily through the 1840s when absinthe was given to French troops as a malaria treatment. When the soldiers returned home, they brought their taste for absinthe with them. It became so popular in bars, bistros, cafes, and cabarets that by the 1860s, the hour of 5 p.m. became known as the Green Hour. Eventually, it made its way to New Orleans and to what became the old absinthe house of Cayetano Ferrer. After Ferrer's death, his family continued operating the saloon and it remained open until the doors were finally nailed shut by the U.S. Marshal during Prohibition. It reopened after Prohibition came to an end, but while it was shut down, a man named Pierre Cabon bought the cash register, the paintings on the wall, the water dripper, and the marble-topped bar and moved them to what is now known as the Old Absinthe House Bar at Bourbon and Conte Street. So the Old Absinthe House is the original location, but the original contents can be found just up the street. Well, my advice, just have a drink at both of them. Then you've experienced the whole thing. The old absinthe house boasts a variety of supernatural phenomena and resident spirits, including a phantom woman, a lost child, and spirit partygoers. Staff members have experienced strange power outages, icy breezes, plates and glasses moving about, chairs and tables moved by unseen hands, and people being touched, pushed, pinched, and having their clothing and hair tugged on. But of course, the most frequently reported spirit is a man believed to be the pirate Jean Lafitte. Lafitte has been frequently sighted in the building, usually making his rounds on the upper floors and scaring the employees by vanishing in front of them. One of the staff members who lived in an apartment on the third floor had gone to change his clothes one afternoon. While he was standing in front of his mirror, he saw a man standing behind him wearing a hat, an open shirt, and a red sash tied about his waist. So pretty much a pirate costume. The figure was standing there staring at him. When the employee spun around to confront the man, he was gone. He quickly searched the apartment along with the hallway outside, but there was no one there. On another occasion, Lafitte was spotted by the stairs in the bar area. A staff member was closing the bar one night and happened to see a man standing a short distance away. When the figure realized he was being watched, he actually smiled and walked toward the employee. She saw him distinctly and later described the man as having tanned skin, a long curving mustache, an open shirt, and royal blue pants that looked old-fashioned. The man walked toward her, passed through the bar, and then suddenly vanished. 
In addition to staff members, I'm sure there are plenty of sightings of Jean Lafitte by the customers too, but I've never bothered to collect them. See, if you drink absinthe, you're bound to see anything, including the ghost of New Orleans' most famous pirate. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words saw Doolittle this morning. <laughs> Did you really? Yes. For you know what? It was a good kids movie. Yeah, I'll give it that. I, I, I had no expectations. Pass on that one, so. I didn't want to, but I need to get my numbers up. <laughs> I'm keeping a log. Did I tell you that? No. A that's log great. of horror films. Just 2020 horror films. That's awesome. I have two on the list so far. That's it. But you know. are they the ones you sent me? Uh The Grudge and oh, okay. um The there, Marshes. You sent me some other ones. I think yeah, but they weren't, they weren't. I don't think they were. They were twenty twenty. Are you uh, rating them or yeah. ranking them or anything? Yeah, nice. So that I can keep track because last year, yeah, when we tried to put that episode together, I'm like, what the fuck did I watch? Yeah, well, the only reason I'm able to do it is because we already keep right. track. I know. Them, so, uh, I know. Yeah, I love that. All right, you ready? Yep. Okay. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now deep into season four of the podcast, Haunted New Orleans. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey there. What's uh, up? Hey, not much. I would say Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, and all that stuff, but we saw each other last month. So it's, oh, yeah, that's yeah, true. We did a, a whole lot of episodes. Uh, we did. Which we know that 
None of you listened. To None them. of you. So now if you're listening to this one and you missed the last two, go back and listen to them because we learned our lesson. You, you, you guys taught us a lesson. We will not have episodes at Christmas time next yes. year. But so. yeah, it'd be fun. I mean, we did the, uh, the like, <laughs> we did have Lala, well, we did Lollary part <laughs> yeah. two in the, in the history of the Creoles yeah. and then our favorite movies of, of yeah. 2019. Yeah. Which was a, that was a two hour and it was, it was so long, but it was so much fun. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> uh, but now, okay. So new year's over. Yes. We're into 2020. Yes. What do we got coming up? Well, the tickets for the Haunted America conference went on sale at the beginning of the month, just last week. Uh, so uh, tickets are now on sale and, uh, we are actually at this point as of this morning, we are just about one third of the way sold out already. Nice. So it's going fast. I know people never believe us and then we fill up and then they're like, oh, well, I really wanted to go to that. Well, you know, you uh, we chance. tried to yeah. tell you. So we're telling you, we're telling you. So don't don't ignore this warning. Uh, we got great lineup of speakers. We got a whole bunch of new after hour stuff. And uh, we we really hope we see you there. Um, just go to the website at ghostconference.net. And, um, if you check on the, uh, you know, any on the, on our Facebook page, you'll find the ad, you'll find the links, you'll find the information, all that stuff. So anyway, get on that and we hope we'll see you there. And we also hope that we will see you much sooner than that because just a, a less than a month from when we're recording this and when you guys hear it, uh, is the dead of winter event. That is the big paranormal event of the winter, uh, February 8th at the mineral Springs hotel in Alton. It's a free daytime event. Uh, the emission is only a canned good or non-perishable item that we donate to food banks. Uh, you don't have to have a reservation for the daytime event. Um, and at this point, the after hour stuff, we have a few spots left for one of the ghost hunts and some spots left for the uh, Black Mirror scrying sessions. But the dinner and the ghost hunt, the Mineral Springs are already sold out. But the daytime event with all the speakers and stuff, absolutely free. You don't need reservations or anything for that. One thing that we do want to ask you to do, you're going to hear this on the 14th. Um, help us out with the, the t-shirt, the souvenir t-shirt that we've got, the long sleeve shirt. Uh, we'll be advertising that this week, but we want to tell you guys about it first. Um, it's going to be pre-ordered. You can pick it up at the event, but the deadline on it is January 16th at midnight. Um, and we have to have all of the orders in uh, just a couple of days after you hear this podcast so that we can get all the shirts on order and have them in time for the event. Um, now, a portion of the proceeds for that is going to go to the food bank that all the food goes to, too. So this is a chance to have a very cool T-shirt and to, to do something good and help out the food bank. So uh, help us out with this and get your orders in while you still can because time is pretty much up for that one. Um, just one more event I want to mention, uh, looking ahead to March, uh, we have, uh, tonight I'm going to be actually doing a, as we record this, doing an evening with the Limp family. But on March 21st, we have a very special one of those. Um, it is going to be the evening with the Limp family. And so I will be doing the normal presentation for the most part. But afterward, we're going to be doing a screening of a brand new film a documentary about Elsa Limp and her mysterious death. Uh, there's a company, uh, Shift Films in St. Louis, has done a documentary called Limp's Last Rite, 
and they're going to be showing the film. It actually is released the day before. So you will be among the first people to see this film. And uh, afterward, we'll be doing a Q&A with the filmmakers uh, from Shift Films, and they have a true crime packet that they're going to be handing out to everyone who attends. Uh, we are about half full on that already, um, and we'd love to have you there. If you enjoyed the, the, the when we did the Haunted St. Louis season, if you enjoyed the Limp Family episodes that we did, uh, this goes uh, more in depth than a lot of the episodes could um, present some new things. And then plus you'll have the, the film and the filmmakers there talking about Elsa's death. So um, it's going to be a very cool event. So you can check that out um, at AmericanHauntings.net and get some information about that. So can love I bring, to see you there. Can I bring popcorn? Absolutely. If you'd like. Nice. So yeah. We I will would. be having dinner first. Well, but yeah, but I mean, you can have popcorn. It's a movie. Yes. Well, yes. My milk You're does. welcome to have any snacks you'd like to bring. I will be selling popcorn for $14 <laughs> <Yeah>, a <right>. bucket. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I'm really excited. Uh, you will find me also at uh, Dead or Winter and Haunted America Conference. I will be yep. outside with a sign protesting <laughs> uh, both yeah, events. Right, right. No, I'm really excited <laughs> to get this stuff going. Uh, we have a couple great listener reviews I wanted to go through. Oh, we do. And okay. something else I want to talk about with the listener reviews. I found a site. Um, you can go to ratethispodcast.com slash American Hauntings. And apparently it'll pull up whatever podcast app you have and you can leave a review there. Really? So I know people have been saying, well, I don't have iTunes and we yeah. say, we know, but please leave it on iTunes. Well, but I'll be darned. if, uh, if you think that that would be something you're interested in and you, there's no way you're going to do it on iTunes, uh, check out ratethispodcast.com slash American hauntings. And, uh, let me know if it, if it works for you and if it's something that works, I'll, I'll keep promoting it. Cool. Uh, so this review is titled one of the best ever. Says I was introduced to uh, Troy listening to Astonishing Legends podcast on Velisca. Decided to check out this podcast and is now my favorite. Troy's deep knowledge of history and dedication to the truth, and Cody's questions and their back and forth are extremely refreshing and awesomely entertaining. Best podcast for those who love creepy stories, history, and truth. Can't wait for the episodes to come back. And currently going back to start binging at season one. Well, hey, we're back, and uh, <laughs> right. I really appreciate the review. That was from Tobin. This next review, uh, I wanted to include this one because it's titled audio, question mark, exclamation point. <laughs> it says, uh, I met Troy in early 2000s, been to many events, purchased this book, so I absolutely love this podcast, but I just started listening to season one and I'm wondering what's up oh, with the God. audio. Yeah, Sounds like awful. you're in a tunnel. Hopefully the next episodes I get into, the quality has improved, but awesome podcast. Well, joke's on you <laughs> because it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yes, if you're but starting it will get much better. Yes. yes. Uh, so like we said, we started off recording in a studio, then went do it ourselves um didn't know what we were doing no. still don't really know what we're doing but no. we're getting better but at least we sound better yes yeah, so uh, if you're starting at season one i hope you make it here to hear me read this review and right. tell you um but uh you're just don't, gonna, give up. don't give up don't give up and that was from t girls uh, so thank you very much for that review uh this last review i'm going to read is titled storytelling history friendship Troy crafts compelling, well-researched stories. His opening narrative is enhanced by the dialogue with Cody to reveal more about the subject and history. Their passion for the subject matter and for making a top-notch podcast make me cheer them on episode after episode. A perfect pairing in so many ways. Thank you, Cody and Troy. And that was from nice. C at BH. Yeah, that was just really, yeah, really just nice, nice, you know? And cool. I know we got into a lot of the friend stuff last time. That was <laughs> that was very heartwarming. Was and, that our was that our movie episode or our second episode? I don't remember. Gotta, we here's a here's a behind the scenes. We recorded three episodes in one day. Um yeah. and that was well, we started at like one o'clock and we didn't get done till almost nine. Yeah. So it was like eight thirty. It was I a think, long when day. We finished. So uh, we might have been a little punchy, but yes. <laughs> by the time we got finished, but it was a lot of fun. So I yeah, can't complain. I had a great time. So yeah. thank you again for the reviews. They help people find the show. 
Are you ready to dive in? Yes, I'm all set. I'm ready. All right. So 1815, the final battle of the War of 1812. I understand that might be confusing, but stick with me. <laughs> yeah, right. New, so New Orleans was already a haven for lawbreakers. You've already outlaws. outdated yourself when you name your war after a date. Yeah. you know? And then you've already made yourself obsolete by 1813. Right. You know, but well, I think they, it did last for a couple of years. Eventually they were like, we're just going to call this one the Great War and that'll solve the <laughs> well, problem. Right. And then we ended up with number two. Yeah. So yeah, that became a problem. Uh, also. So New Orleans, it's a haven for a bunch of crazy people. Um, and, and then, so we're, we're getting our asses kicked in the War of 1812 by the British, and they're teaming with uh, teaming up with Native Americans, and we're really worried that they're going to take the port city of New Orleans. Well, see, now, by 1814, we had turned things around considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, the first year and a half or so of this war was really bad. Um, I mean, you know, they burned the White House. They were, you know, defeating all of our ships on the high seas because we didn't have, I mean, the British Empire had been around for centuries by yeah. that time. And we were new. I mean, the United States was still a new country. And so um, we didn't have the kind of superiority on the sea or land at that point. Uh, we had beaten them during the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this really wasn't war speaking, not that much longer, not much later. Yeah. Now, not much time had passed. So, um, you know, people were very into it as far as, you know, nobody wanted to fall under the control of the British again. But on the other hand, we didn't have the ships or the guns or the men or the expertise. So things were pretty bad, but we stuck it out. And because we were able to use the entire war was kind of like a, um, sort of a, a, a larger version of the Battle of New Orleans. Okay, yeah. We were using everything, every resource we had mm-hmm. to beat the British who were still fighting their wars. I mean, they'd beaten Napoleon by, you know, lining up in rows and marching at the armies. That's because that's how everybody fought. Right. Well, you can't, you don't fight a war against, in those days, you don't fight against a war against Americans that way Mm -hmm. because we don't follow any of those rules at that time. Right. So you had all these guys who were frontiersmen and marksmen and sharpshooters and guerrilla fighters who had already beaten the British that way once. So they just did it again. Mm -hmm. So eventually by hiring, you know, or getting pirates on our side and that kind of thing, we started to win on the sea and then we started to win on the land as well. So by 1814, the British weren't doing that well, but they thought if they could capture New Orleans, Mm -hmm. which was a major port by this time for the United States, that they could then control the Western part of our country. And then, you know, a lot of the War of 1812, when we think about it, we think of, you know, um, you know, the Battle of, you know, Fort McHenry and and the Star Spangled Banner and all these things with ships. But a lot of it was fought in the wilderness. I mean, all of the, the Native American, the massacres and things that took place, you know, were happening out west. So by getting a hold of New Orleans, you would control the Mississippi River and the Western Front and would be able to strike from that direction. And mm-hmm. that would have been bad. Yeah. But, you know, jokes on everybody. The war was already over by the time the battle was fought. Yes. So, yes. but nobody knew that at the time. And it was a desperate fight to save New Orleans. Right. Yeah. I mean, you want to grab, you want to grab the ports, you want to grab bridges, you want to grab yeah. a, a, pissed off people that are already on a continent that uh, can maybe help fight back. So they were doing a good job. But uh, yeah, I guess like you said, they weren't ready for the guerrilla warfare type type stuff. Uh, So you mentioned pirates. Let's dive into pirates. So you described them in a certain way, but I I changed a little bit. So I love pirates. I I love stories about pirates. I love a history of pirates. I, 
You know, when I, I remember one of the first books I ever owned as a kid, I had an uncle who gave me this book of like boys adventure stories and it had Call of the Wild, which is to this day still one of my favorite books. Mm, they're making it a movie. I know. I saw that with Harrison Ford. Yeah. Yeah. That, there's a great meme. Have you seen the meme? I haven't seen the meme. Oh, I'll tell you about okay. it later. All right. Um, and uh, Treasure Island. Oh, yeah. And so that hooked me on pirates from the very beginning. You know, uh, Long John Silver and Captain Flint and, you know, and all that stuff. I was hooked. And I think I've never gotten over it. Mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason, I have spent my whole life loving. I've got a huge collection of books on pirates. I've got pirate flags hanging in my office. Do you I just have a pirate tattoo, too. Yeah. Okay. I have a whole arm that's okay. actually pirates. <laughs> I just really like the whole thing about it. And, you know, it was a horrible, it was nothing like what we see in the movies. I know not this. the Jack Sparrow type. No, it stuff. is nothing like, you know, what we, what we know real life wasn't, but yeah. it's still fascinating whether it's real life or entertainment. So the, the Jean Lafitte story is, is always one I've loved. These were, this episode and our next episode are, are kind of like my two favorites. Right. Um, that I've got here in the middle of stuff about New Orleans. Awesome. So. Well, I'm going to set up some John Lafitte yes. stuff. So, yes. But you say the, the Jack Sparrow type piracy, as I call it, uh, ended in the Gulf of Mexico in the middle of 1700s. But yeah. the same shit continued with the privateers, essentially. Right. right? They just had a license to steal. Right. right. I mean, essentially is what it was. Right. So. so they could capture enemy ships and sell their stuff as long as they had papers that said they were at war, essentially. Right. Well, and so the 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 the. Republic of Cartagena, which mm -hmm. is just a port, but at the time was separate from Colombia, um, was at war with Spain. So as uh -huh. long as you flew their flag and you had papers from there, you could attack Spanish ships. But it was supposed to be Spanish ships only. But of course, the Spanish were the ones bringing back most of the gold. So they were the best ships anyway. Right. But, um, but a lot of these guys were... You know, whatever. If you come on a ship and it's riding low in the water, you know it's full of stuff and you're going to take it and worry about it later. They're just mercenaries. You could just, yeah, you can either just kill the entire crew and scuttle the ship or people, if you let them live, they're probably not going to talk. Right. Either way. So mostly it was supposed to be attacking Spanish ships, but, you know, it was everybody. Sure. So, so. They, yeah, they attacked every ship and then they could start bringing their prizes essentially to New Orleans. And uh, well, first they were they had to take it to Cartagena. Okay. And then they would have to have a report because they would get a cut. Mm -hmm. But what was happening was, you know, once you got the cut, then you could do the, 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 the Republic got their cut. Then you could do whatever you wanted with the rest of it. Mm -hmm. You divided it up between the entire crew. Uh, usually the captain would get uh, a larger percentage than everyone else, but it would be split between the entire right. crew. It was a, it was definitely a democracy the way that they did things. Um, they voted on everything. This is, I mean, it's just, there's a whole I couldn't get into all that in the, the, in the website. Code. There was a custom, you know, a, a custom that they did. But what ha what was started happening is once New Orleans got off the ground and started to become a major port, they were finding, well, why go all the way to Cartagena when I can just take stuff to New Orleans and smuggle it in mm -hmm. and sell it to the shopkeepers here? Yeah. And so that's what started to happen. And Jean Lafitte and his brother Pierre were uh, two of the top smugglers in New Orleans in the um, shortly after the founding of the city, early, early, early 1800s. And they brought stuff through the Bay of... Uh, Berteria. Berteria, which 
was divided by two islands, one of which was Grand Terre, which essentially sounds like a really just dope pirate hangout. It, it becomes one once, yeah, once Lafitte takes over, it right. becomes one. Yeah, so someone had to rule that place. That person eventually was John Lafitte. So we don't know much about his past, like you said, his brother Pierre. Uh, they established a couple fronts for smuggling, blacksmith shop and store. Uh, they threw parties. They were well known. So John could, John sounds like, I mean, a really smart guy. He could speak oh, yeah. English, French, Spanish, yeah. Italian fluently. Um, and it, something happened on January 1st, 1808. A new law banned more slaves from coming in. So, of course, the price skyrockets because supply and demand. Right. Just like prohibition. You yep. know, it's selling booze during prohibition. So it's like thing. the Al Capone of uh, yeah. the yeah, pirates. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And so uh, a, y- a year, this is what like boggles my mind. So he rules for almost a decade. He's challenged only once, apparently. He shot, shot the guy dead. But uh, a year after coming to Grand Terre, he's already ruling a thousand men and 50 ships, essentially. Right, right. So there, you know, he's got, he's taken over. He organizes everything. I mean, because he was really a great businessman, yeah, a great organizer. Like organized everything, built a town out there, essentially on the island, uh, built a home for himself that he could go back and forth between New Orleans and Grand Terre. And, um, you know, had... What he was doing was essentially he was a it was organized crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it is the epitome of organized crime. He had all of these captains, uh, you know, like the you know the capos that work for the mafia, and they, he had all these captains. Then they had their crew, and everybody kicked up the chain. So mm-hmm. they would go out, they would raid a ship, and they would bring home the plunder. Everything was then taken through him. He got his cut, and then he would get it distributed into the city. Um, and was making a fortune yeah. doing this and, and really didn't even have to get his hands dirty. I mean, there's no re- no need. He had a Smart thousand guy. guys who worked for him. Why did he need to? You said so. he's so good. Legitimate commerce actually begins to suffer. Yeah. Uh, 1813, <laughs> yeah. the governor declares them pirates and he offers a $500 reward for his arrest. And then this, in a baller move, <laughs> yeah. Lafitte responds by issuing his own reward for the arrest of the governor uh, for what, $1,000? Yeah, 1500 1500 yeah. uh, But his brother Pierre ends up getting arrested. So Lafitte gets these two attorneys, Grimes and Livingston. Uh, you said pays them 20K each. And if, <laughs> if I adjust that to be it was three hundred twenty-one thousand yeah, dollars. A lot of money. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so did so did Grimes resign as district attorney yeah. just for he the money? He was the district attorney of the parish, awesome. and so he quit so that he could get the twenty thousand. Oh, I mean that's that was enough money yeah. for him to retire. Yeah. Well, why not? So all he had to do was take one case. Uh, you know, and then hope he got paid. But right. you know, I think Lafitte had a good reputation, so I think he felt he was going to get paid. But then, you know. Lafitte said, well, you know, come on out and pick it up, yes. you know, and the other guy was too scared to go out to the island. Yeah. So he said, well, you do, you get mine and I'll give you, you know, I'll give you $2,000 out of it so right. that you can keep it. So he goes out there and then, you know, they suck him in with women, wine and song and he ends up gambling away all that's the money. That's a that he hell won. of a bender. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, loses all his money. money in three days. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's just like, you know, we've all seen. Goodfellas and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So you get these guys and, you know, you watch The Sopranos, you get these guys that come in and, and Robert Patrick did that guest spot on The Sopranos where he had the sporting goods store and he had a gambling problem and Tony kept telling him, listen, no, you don't want to bet with us. You know, come mm-hmm. on, come on. So somebody takes his thing. He ends up losing all of his money and they took everything. They took over his sporting goods store, laundered money through it, everything. I mean, that's what happens yeah. when you mess with people you should not be messing with. Yes, so. and, and gambling is, is an epidemic, so if you need help, get help. <laughs> um, so, so Lafitte, like I 
want to like him, kind of want to hate him, but he seems like a, like an anti-hero kind of guy. Oh, like, yeah, very sure. smart, but sort of fair, but also, you know, crooked he's still a, and corrupt. He's still a pirate. Yeah, he's still a criminal. Still yeah. a pirate. Yeah. Uh, so, like I said, Grimes loses all the money in three days. Eventually, the military comes in and just fucks up their spot in September yeah. uh, 1814, but John and Pierre escape. Um, well, the fear was, well, the fear was is that the, the pirates were going to turn on the city. Ah, uh, right. Um, because they had, you know, arrested Pierre and they'd been putting out proclamations that said, oh, these guys are pirates don't do business with them. And so then the military got nervous and realized that if a thousand pirates with 50 ships decide to join up with the British, New Orleans is screwed at that point. And they could do a lot of damage. So they thought, well, we'll just go in and get rid of the pirates. Well, Mm -hmm. didn't quite work that way. Right. And the British British also noticed this, but they had a better plan, which is approach and say, hey. To try to pay them. Yeah, team up with us. Uh, But Lafitte, being the smart businessman that he was, um, basically. Well, he knew what would happen to him. If he he takes the British money and becomes a, a British citizen and turns on New Orleans, at some point, they're going to screw him over. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I'm sure he knew this because he was a threat to to both sides, and I think had a loyalty to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And to at that point, you know, he was either you know had a whether or not he had a loyalty to the French anymore, he still had a loyalty to you know the Americans. And surprisingly, even after the problems he'd had with the governor, he went straight to the governor and said, "Hey, listen, Smart. you know, give us a pardon, and we'll help you out here because right. you're in trouble." And that's how we get to General Andrew Jackson. So Jackson's in New Orleans. He's sick as hell, but he's still giving orders. Well, I should also tell you, though, at the beginning, yeah. that it was Jackson who said, uh, no, we're not going to team up with pirates. Really? Yeah. So that was initially, you know, even though we, you know, he gets painted as the hero in New Orleans and this kind of guy who thought outside the box, even though he's like reviled now. Yes. But at the at, in the 19th century, he was a great hero. Mm-hmm. That's why he's on the $20 bill, sure. okay? So you have to, You again, you can't, and I've said this before, I sound like a sports guy now. You I've do. said it before and I'll say it again, <laughs> but you you can't judge events of the past by the standards of today. You, you just can't. I mean, don't get me wrong, Jackson was a, was a horrible person when it came to Native Americans and all kinds of other things, but he also saved New Orleans and he did do some decent stuff. I mean, he was... In his military career, was a hero. And then in this particular case, initially he said, "No, we're not going to team up with pirates. We can't trust them." Mm-hmm. And then when Lafitte s- s- comes again to escapes from them raiding his island, yeah. comes back to him and says, "Listen." I'm going to give you another chance here. I can help you out. They finally realized, um, yeah, if we don't take his help, we're, we are in trouble. Yeah. So they're so like, they you know, did. I'm guessing that was probably also a breaking point. It's like, let's arm anybody, everybody. Yeah, well, right. Exactly. They were arming, you know, they had, you know, troops of, you know, free people of color. They were mm-hmm. giving them weapons. They were giving them to Choctaw Indians who were sympathetic to the Americans and were on a friendly, they were a friendly tribe. They were getting them to everybody. I mean, people were coming, um, as I mentioned, People were coming downstream on the river to try to help because they had heard that there was trouble. Mm-hmm. And if the British got into New Orleans, they would control the entire river and then they knew they would be in trouble as well. Right. So people were showing up with their own guns, thankfully, because there weren't enough to go around. Mm-hmm. And that was that was the army he put together. He didn't have very many military people. He had no money. Yep. I mean, Madison, President Madison wouldn't couldn't 
couldn't send him anything. They had run dry. They had nothing. They had no army to send him. He had to work with what he had, which I think is what makes this story even better. Right. I think. Well, yeah, because the Brits attack on December 23rd, 1841. But the Bad News Bears Army yeah, makes, right. makes exactly. it happen and, and holds exactly. them back. They are the Rebel Alliance yes. of New Orleans. Yes. So. Yes. And then January 8th, the final battle takes place on, was it Chalmette? Chalmette Plantation. Plantation. Yeah. Uh, this stat just blows my mind. So by the end of the day, Americans lost 15 at 40 wounded. But the British <laughs> yeah. lost 858 yeah. and had 2,500 wounded or missing. Yeah. That's some like Spartan shit. Right uh, yeah, there. it is. I mean, that's, I mean, they were, they were so outnumbered. And, but again, the British just lined up in lines and marched across the field, which had been effective during the Napoleonic Wars in Europe when everyone's fighting the same kind of fight. Yeah. That works. But, you know, if you've, if you've seen the Patriot that, yeah. that, you know, that the Revolutionary War movie, you realize that that doesn't work in America. No. It's not the same. We don't have the same kind of battlefields they were using in, in France. And this certainly wasn't. But I mean, these guys were hiding behind hay bales that were stuffed with cotton. Yeah. But, you know, bullets weren't didn't have the velocity that they have now either. But or the still, aim. Well, yeah. that either. Yeah. But still, when you're lining up in lines and you've got guys who have been hunting their entire lives to eat, to yeah. survive, they it, and that was the other way that, or the other reason that we won the Revolutionary War. We're, the British were fighting, you know, a bunch of just soldiers taken from wherever in England. And you've got guys who, you know, depend on their, their rifles to survive. They are good shots. And so when you come marching across a field and you've got a bunch of, you know, guys without uniforms or equipment hiding behind hay bales, they're going to pick you off. Yep. I mean, that's why at the beginning of the Civil War, the, the South dominated. They just ran out of men. They just mm-hmm. end supplies and money. Uh, but they were much better shots and they had some idea of what they were doing instead of factory workers from, you know, Philadelphia or New right. York or something. So this is the problem that the British ran into and they just slaughtered them out there on yeah. the field. There's so. got to be something to it as well. Like, like you said, you were, you're fighting to survive your way of life, like p- people coming into your yeah. home sort it's of different. thing. It's different. Yeah. Yeah. Ask anybody who went to Vietnam. Yeah. I'll tell you the same thing. Ugh. It's a big difference. Oh, man. Thank you for your service. So the Battle of New Orleans uh, turned two men into heroes. One would become president and the other, well, go back to being a pirate. Mm -hmm. The pirates are all, I feel like this is like in a movie somewhere. The pirates are all pardoned and, you know, Lafitte can go one way or the other. And at the victory ball to celebrate, Lafitte approaches the governor and Jackson, some military men. Military man won't, you know, yeah, shake his hand. Yeah, won't do anything to do with him because yeah. he's a dirty pirate. And at that moment, I think that's kind of like uh, his turning point again. It was like, well, you know, screw this. Well, and, and, and you know, I kind of trimmed that down to explain, you know, to make it succinct so we could tell it as a story. But one of the guys tried to apologize to him and said that he didn't mean him any offense. Mm. And, you know, it was too late. The damage I mean, had been you'd done. Already, you'd already offended him and he knew, you know, so when he introduced himself to that guy he introduced himself as Lafitte the pirate mm, right um, and knowing that you know that's what he would always be so he just decided screw this I'm I got pardoned so now I'll go commit some new crimes you know I think so. this story and our next one just show accept people into your circle yeah <laughs> so yeah, they don't yeah. go to be a pirate or a ghost and you know try to haunt people <laughs> um, and you mentioned that there was it was ironic because the war was over. Right. But they right. didn't get the message. They didn't get right. the memo. Well, news didn't, as we've talked about before, news didn't travel quite so fast back in those days. Right. So they'd actually signed a treaty before Christmas 
uh, in France to to end this the the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but nobody, there was no way to get word to anybody. There yeah. was no telegraphs or anything. You had to send letters by sea, mm. and by the time it got there. Too it little, was too, too late. late you know. I heard a story once. You might be able to tell me if this is true or not, but I've heard. I don't remember if it was World War One or what. But so many people died in the very final hours of it or something because they knew it was going to stop at a certain time and just oh, I don't went know. crazy and tried to kill oh. as many people as they can, kind of thing. Lovely. And I don't no, know if that's I don't, true. That I don't know. I'll have to check my sources yeah, check on that. Yeah, I'd be curious. I'd be like, so. I'm going to go. I mean, hide I know that. I mean, I know that after at the end of the Civil War there were still battles going on long after Lee had surrendered. Oh, yeah. I mean, that went on for a couple of months because um, some people just decided they weren't going to surrender. Mm-hmm. Um, but and some of them ended up going to, like, South America and stuff, thinking, like, oh, the geez. Nazis, they would start right, up again, right? right? Uh, but, yeah, th- so, you know, word didn't travel quite so fast back in those days. Mm-hmm. You didn't call a ceasefire and it goes out on Twitter. You right, know, it just right. wasn't like that. So, you know, and especially in 1815, you know, the word wasn't going to travel. So that is unfortunate. And I think, yeah, I've seen it in a movie where like the guys lost in the remote jungles of Vietnam. Like, Oh yeah. Well, actually, is that a real thing? That that actually, that's, um, it, it, Vietnam maybe, but world war two, it happened a lot in the South Pacific. There were a lot of, you, you heard a lot of stories about Japanese guys who were holed up out there like 20, 25 years later, they don't have any idea of what's happened. They've been completely out of contact and think the war is still going on. There are several instances. You find several good books about that. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting that these guys had such a, um, you know, such a tradition of honor that they were not going to surrender until they were ordered to surrender. And, no one came because no one knew they were there. Man. And 20, 25 years after the war ended, they're still out there fighting World War II. Because they just don't know. That's heartbreaking. You know? So, yeah. Uh, I do want to use this moment, too, to plug 1917. Go see it. Yeah. We're talking World War One. Yeah. My favorite movie of last year. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so they eventually move. Pierre and, his, and uh, John go to present-day Galveston, Texas. Right. And he started a new town. They started. Yeah. Gal- so Galveston. Galveston can can thank, you know, the, the pirates Lafitte. Who, for- was, who was Galvez? I don't know. Just oh, okay. must have been some guy that lived there, I'm sure. <laughs> and it was he was probably the one who founded it. They just made it into what it became. Fair so. enough. And he and the crew continued to attack, uh, you know, whatever ships that they wanted to. But this is the beginning of the end in September 1819 when Lafitte's brother and men attacked Spanish merchant vessel, but they didn't have the, the proper paperwork. Well, it wasn't. Yeah, it was actually some guys that he had sent to pick up a ship in mm. New Orleans. They had, he had bought a sloop, sent these guys to pick it up, and on their way back, without <laughs> papers, they attacked a ship, oh, and then they got caught. And he tried to get them out and tried to, you know, use any influence he still had in New Orleans to do it, and um, they were all hung as pirates. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the beginning of the end to their, you know, their run. Right. And in late 1820, a pirate named Brown plundered an American vessel, and yeah. which led back to Lafitte. But so Lafitte hung this guy, though, is what Yes, he did, because he didn't want them. They weren't supposed to attack American ships mm-hmm. because he was loyal to the Americans. So that was treason as far as he yeah. was concerned. Yeah, and so he hung this guy, but even so, the military had said, you know, hey, you know, we're, we're done. You yeah. can maybe be, you know— control but these the rest of these people can't mm-hmm. so we're we're going to destroy all this and so he burned the settlement himself right so, so yeah so he de- deconstructs the, the settlement sails away with three ships two of which abandoned him when he when he wouldn't pirate anymore yeah he just decided he was done and what became of him after that is unknown uh, Talk to me about this journal. Well, there are a few different th- theories. Yeah. Um, there are stories that he died of yellow fever in the Yucatan in 1826 
There are also there's also a story that he was wounded in a battle and was buried at sea. Mm-hmm. But then in the 1940s, this journal showed up in St. Louis that was supposedly written by Lafitte in his later years. Um, and they said that it was printed on the right kind of paper. Um, it, it mentioned people of the time. So, I mean, if it was a fake, somebody went to a lot of trouble to make it seem real. Um, it even had his correct signature and spelled his name correctly because the, the common spelling for Lafitte uh, is one F and two T's, mm-hmm. but Lafitte actually spelled it with two F's and one T. Ah, okay. So all of these, and that was not this, and still isn't commonly known. So people think that maybe it was, I don't know. There's no way to know if it's real, but supposedly he changed his name to John Laughlin and lived in Alton. It's crazy. Yeah, and died in 1854 in Alton. And was buried in a Catholic cemetery right up off Hapala Road. Mm-hmm. So there's also a story about there being, because if there's a pirate, I mean, okay, it was the 1940s. Yeah. And if there's a pirate, then there has to be treasure. Of course. So there is there is a story that I don't mention very often, that there's supposed to be pirate gold hidden up Hapala Road. Oh, uh, which is this haunted road anyway. And yeah. People supposedly looked for it. I, I don't know much of the details about that, but... I don't. I don't even know if the story is even remotely true, mm-hmm. but that's that's the story. Is the journal still around? It's it's in print. You can get it. I mean, you can get it in print, but it's. I mean, there's just no way to know if it's real. Right. There's no way to authenticate it. Yeah. That's the problem. And don't go digging around up in Hot Road. Yeah, you'll find bodies. You'll find probably. bones. Yes. Yeah. Not not treasure. So. Uh, well, that's that's unfortunate. But you so you never seen the actual journal or anything? No, no, I haven't. It, it's I know if probably, it was in a museum or it's something. Pr- it or? probably is, and I'm not sure where. Um, I just read about the journal sometimes, mm-hmm. but I didn't. Interesting. Yeah. So he's gone. We don't know where, but that doesn't stop him from showing up. So let's talk about <laughs> the ghost or ghosts yeah. of John Lafitte. So it can be found in two places. Yeah. Well, and that's, see, the, the more places, it's like the ghost Lincoln. of Abraham Lincoln <laughs> yes. the, or Al Capone. The more places that you find that they supposedly haunt, the less believable the story becomes. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, when I was talking about the old absinthe house in New Orleans, <laughs> separating truth from fiction can be pretty hard. But sure. I mean, going all the way back, and I, I think I mentioned in the monologue is, you know, when I'm talking about the blacksmith shop, it's a must stop. Yeah. It's a must stop place when you go to New Orleans. But whether or not, there's no actual proof mm-hmm. that they Pierre and, and Jean owned it. Um, that's the legend that's been around forever. So people just sort of accept it. And it's called Lafitte's blacksmith shop. It always has been. Mm-hmm. But and so that's kind of become the, you know, the story is sure. Jean Lafitte owned this and this is what he used as the front for his smuggling business. Um, I, like I said, I don't know, but it, it, it's a cool spot. Yeah. I mean, it's always busy, but it's fun if you get to go there. If you go there in the daytime, it's not very busy. At mm-hmm. night, it's always packed. Go to that little outside bar. Yeah, the I little outside bar is easier to get served yeah. out there. Yeah, because inside's a madhouse. But um it's a cool, it's a cool spot. Yeah. And it, it is, I, th- I think what makes it so interesting to me as a nerd, as a <laughs> history nerd, is that this building is what's left of the buildings that the French designed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that old because it predates those fires at the end of the 1700s. So, I mean, the entire French quarter is actually Spanish. Yep. And we talked about that in an earlier episode, but this building is what the rest of New Orleans used to look like. Mm-hmm. And there are a few others, there are a few other buildings around that are similar to this one. 
Uh, but this is a, a good example of it. And I think that makes it cool. And it's got a, I mean, it's just, it's a neat, it's a neat place. Mm-hmm. Um, haunted, I don't know, people say, I mean, people swear that it is, you know, um, and there are the, the usual stories, the woman who's supposed to kill herself upstairs. And right. there are other ghosts that haunt the bar themselves. And people have seen who they think is Jean Lafitte over by the fireplace. But I mean, there's, there's so many things that have happened there in that building and so many different people that have owned it, that if it is truly haunted and, and there's no reason why it wouldn't be based on its history, based on the number of people that have been through there. And all of the eyewitness accounts over the years, it's it's easy to believe that it could be haunted. Um, whether or not it's Lafitte or one of these other people, it could be anybody. I, yeah. I like to think it, that it's uh, it's that Tom Kaplinger guy. Yeah. The one who used to just, he owned the we place. We all know and, a bartender like Oh yeah, gave away owner. drinks to all his friends. Tennessee Williams was a buddy of his and used to hang out in the bar. And I mean, there's a, talk about a guy that could drink. I yeah. mean, he's like Hemingway, you know, esque type drinking here. And, you know, so when he, when Tom died, he had so much debt that, <laughs> there was no way his uh, family could shovel themselves out of it, you know, and because he'd given away so many drinks and it had run things so sloppy, I, I'd like to think it's still him hanging around. Yeah. One of the, one of the ghosts, at least, uh, that would be the one that would be fun to, to run into. But anyway, people do say that they, you know, it is a haunted spot and it's a definitely a spot. It's on every tour yep. and it's worth it. Mean, of course, the only tour that we recommend are haunted history tours, that company. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only one. That, and I've got a friend who's owned that for many, many, many years. And that's the best tour in New Orleans. So if you're looking for a recommendation, that's always going to be the company that I'm going to tell you to go to. I, and I loved it. And yeah. the, the story, especially they told about this bar was yeah. great. Yeah, we have great. They have great tour guides. We've got our favorites that we always use when we go down. Uh, but that is, um, that's the best company and, and it's yeah. a great spot. Yeah. It's check them out. Spot. And I know yeah. you said, you know, it'd be, you'd like it to be Tom Kaplinger, but this woman you mentioned that, you know, committed may suicide, have committed suicide. may have committed suicide. Uh, the way you described it, it said she's often encountered by people who say she's approached them and quietly whispered into their ears. That's hot. I want her to approach me instead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if I have to be yeah. scared. Forget about the pirates. Yeah. Forget about the pirates. But you mentioned he might also be in another bar. Yes. But also on Bourbon Street. Yeah. So he likes it as much as the tourists do. Let's talk um, about the old absinthe house. I love this place, uh, which so I was happy to get to. I mean, we're, we'll have an episode later about haunted bars in New Orleans, but this was one worth covering now because it was connected to Lafitte. Mm-hmm. You know, with it was supposedly the place he smuggled a lot of stuff to. And so that was where he met with Andrew Jackson to plan the battle. That's the legend. And a lot of people say that they've seen him there. But this place has so much history uh, anyway. And it's such a it's such a neat spot to go in. Um, and I mean, it it's played host to Mark Twain and Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde and Aleister Crowley. Yeah. You know, I mean, so it's it's seen a lot of places, a lot of people besides Jean Lafitte. But um, I really like the old Absinthe House. I mean, it started out as just a, a, you know, a warehouse and a store and it became a shoe store for a while. And then it became a bar um, when um, when uh, Cayetano Ferrer took over. He's the one who started making the first absinthe in the United States. Let's talk about selling it there. Yeah, let's talk about absinthe. Well, I can't tell you any more than I told you already, because I usually don't remember a lot after I drank (laughs) a lot of it. Um, But absinthe is one of those one of those drinks that has this reputation. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, okay, let me give you a comparison. Sure. Um, and I mentioned this in my, in the monologue is the, the, the 
reputation that it got is that it was a hallucinogenic and all. None of that stuff is true. That was the something that was started that got it banned by French winemakers because yeah. they it was doing damage to their business. But that's what people to this day still think. It's like some kind of hallucinogenic. Yep. And I keep trying to tell people, no, it's not. It's just, it's really strong liquor, but yes. it's not a hallucinogenic, you know, a hallucinogenic. But um, the, the comparison would be like back in the 1930s, you know, it got, absinthe got banned here in the United States because people believe the propaganda. It's the same propaganda that surrounded marijuana mm-hmm. since the 1930s when people said, oh, it would make you crazy. And I mean, that's where reefer madness comes yes, from and all that yes. stuff. And it was all just propaganda. And, and then it became illegal. And now that's changing in a lot of states like Illinois, mm-hmm. you know, and it's become because people have realized that those stories finally have realized those stories are true. Um, and it's the same way with absinthe. In the late 90s, people started being allowed to sell it again it stopped the band stopped um and there are a lot of let me give you some let me give you some this is non-expert advice yeah, on absinthe please. this is um this is i am not an absinthe expert or maker of absinthe or anything else but as a drinker of mm-hmm. absinthe <laughs> i will always tell you that if you go to new orleans always take always ask for the middle of the road Absinthe. Okay. Don't ever take the really cheap stuff because it's bad. Mm-hmm. And there's no need to take the really expensive stuff because it's no better than the $12 glass. Okay. Don't take the $6 glass. Take the $12 glass. Um, in the old Absinthe house, they've got a whole bunch of different ones and they'll give you whatever option. But usually, I've my experience there has been that the bartenders are pretty honest mm-hmm. and tell you, listen, just take the $10 or $12 one because mm-hmm. it's pretty much the same. Um, I also like to get it at the Pirates Bar there. That's where we had it, at the Pirates Bar. Oh, right, right, right. Um, In Pirates Alley there by the church. Um, But anyway, you know, the the whole thing is, the thing about absinthe is you may not like the taste because it tastes like black licorice. So if you don't like that taste, you're not going to like Jägermeister. Yeah, Yeah. it's that kind of thing. But um, it's the ritual. It's the it's everything that they do mm-hmm. with the, you know, pouring the water with the sugar cube and all that stuff. That's what makes it cool. And that's why it's fun. It's something fun to do. And I mean, if you, if you're a drinker or if you just, you know, don't mind having a drink every once in a while, if you go to New Orleans, you got to have some absinthe. You, you, you just have to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I highly recommend it. Just get it, just get one 10 or 12 bucks and just have one and you can say you've done it and yeah. you've gotten to watch the water dripper and all that stuff. Cause that's, that's what makes it cool mm-hmm. so so i have a story and a nerd fact for you all right uh back in probably college i think i was with charlie Brockus, who does the music for us and um and his brother jack and some other people and um this was back when how can i describe this we were uh more psychedelic explorers oh yeah there you go and down to try anything <laughs> um and so my buddy got he finally got a bottle of the good absinthe right that mm-hmm. would that would make you trip and all that <laughs> stuff right. so we do the sugar cube stuff try all that stuff didn't feel anything no. aside from drunk and right. whatever else we, right. was going on. Um, so I was really disappointed in that. But <laughs> I, I started looking into it a little bit more because I was really curious. Um, and I know we, we had talked about it in, uh, I think they use it as an example in like a neuropsych class or something. And so I, I dusted off the books and started learning a little bit more about it. And so the chemical that people were confused about with the wormwood is is thujone. Um, and it's not in high enough doses to, to cause any impact really in absinthe, but it's it's a GABA inhibitor. And GABA is basically responsible for like reducing neurons g- getting all excited throughout your nervous system. Okay. Um, so thujone is essentially a neurotoxin, um, but it can only be found in trace amounts of absinthe. And you're going to die from alcohol poisoning long before you <laughs> feel the right. effects. Before you start yeah, having any hallucinations. Yeah. And know. so that was where a lot of the, the <laughs> issues came from and the misconceptions and 
things as far as the, from a chemical standpoint, but it had uh, medicinal uses, like you said, back to ancient Egypt. Yeah. Nuns started using it um, in France in the late 1700s, and it was given to the uh, French troops in the 1840s as malaria <laughs> so, treatment. Malaria treatment. And I, I don't know how it did anything for malaria. I, but so I, I did you look at, that I looked up? into this. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was funny. <laughs> it, it is funny, but there, there was a Slate article um, from 2013, and it said that uh, wormwood is wormwood tea is being used in Africa to okay. and it, it was cutting the risk of malaria by one third from people who drank Interesting. the tea. However, uh, the World Health Organization people, they're not on board because uh, you don't know the dosage and things oh, and it's very sure. hard to like systematically get it correct. And I think but too much wormwood would probably not be. It probably wouldn't be a good thing, yeah. but um, but it does help with malaria somehow. Well, I didn't dive cool. into the science too much and I probably wouldn't have understand. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, but, I wouldn't have either. But it, was, but it has some, you know, basis in, in fact there. So I thought it was interesting. So after the prohibition and uh, Ferrer's death, uh, Pierre Cassabone, is that right? Mm. Okay, bought most. Sorry, of, yes. uh, no, it's cool. I, I should stop asking you questions when you're taking a drink. But he, he buys uh, most of the stuff in inside the bar and and the building and moves it up the street where we get a bunch of ghosts. Right. That was yeah during prohibition. He yeah he bought a bunch of stuff. So yeah, I always tell everybody. Well, that's what I said. Go to both. Yeah, yeah. Go. go Although to, the old absinthe house, I think is a. I don't know. It's this cooler atmosphere. I don't know because it's the original. I right. Guess, right. You know, so. Uh, well, I can't I can't wait to go. But we got all these these bunch of ghosts, um, uh, like standard phantom woman, oh, sure. lost child, uh, spirit party goers. Yeah. I, I love a lot that. of history. Well, that and that's one of those stories where people have heard like groups of people, you know, oh, they, okay. and they go, you hear glasses and hear all kinds of stuff going on and they go right. to check and the room's empty. That's one of those stories. You and know? then you told a creepy little story about Lafitte in a pirate costume in a mirror. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is very scary. And then the a very vivid interaction with a bar employee where he has to yeah. makes eye contact with her and walks through the bar. Right, right. That's terrifying. Yeah, it's a good story. So, but yeah, I um, and, and as I mentioned, that there there are other stories, mm-hmm. but it's hard to take too many of them very seriously because I've I've consumed a lot of absinthe in this yes. place, and I know that you know it, what it can do to you. So mm-hmm. it's hard to take too many of the ghost stories from customers sure. too seriously. Anymore. So is it, in your experience, is it um, a very distinct kind of drunk, like wine is one thing, tequila is another? No, you know not what I mean? really. Not so I much? mean, it's just drunk. It's just I mean, drunk. it's just drunk. It's, it's a very high alcohol content. Yeah. And, you know, when you're already drinking mm-hmm. down there, you know, we're, we're at Pat O'Brien's with hurricanes and those, uh, those rainstorm, the, those, the grenade blue things rainstorm or, things. Are, what are those grenade things? Or is it just, oh yeah, those, they yeah, hand grenades. Hand grenades. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of those but Ugh. the girls were drinking them last time we were down there and you know i i love that blue i don't even remember if it's rainstorm or thunderstorm like or that. whatever it is they have it at pat o'brien's and where that is the best hurricane we'll we'll get to the bars okay okay and I'll, i'm sure i'll have many 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 recommendations and places to avoid mm-hmm. um in in the time that comes when we get to that episode but um yeah, there's just when you're already drinking anyway because mm-hmm. it's New Orleans, and then you go and you end up topping it with absinthe. Yeah, you're asking for trouble. Well, that was my experience because yeah. we were already drinking, and I I think you yeah. just you think you sought it out and like handed me yes. something. Yeah, well, because you had to. Yeah, yeah, you have to do it. So, but yeah, that was the night that that was the well. I'm not going to get into all okay. that. But I all all I will say is two words, and if they're listening, Elise. And Maggie, yes. that's all I'm going to say. Somehow I became, uh, you know, a babysitter that <laughs> night and uh, that was too much absinthe. So, and I, not mine either, but anyway. 
Uh, we'll just leave it at that. Yes. And probably try to wrap up this episode before we get in trouble or get someone else in trouble. Yes. So, so it is now time for our ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. So uh, this, I, I move this one up to the top because it's kind of time sensitive. So this is from Andrew. He said, I just want to say I love the podcast so far, especially the new season about New Orleans. My wife and I are going on a cruise that departs and returns to New Orleans at the start of February. Neither of us have ever been there uh, before and we're looking forward. We're looking for stuff to do, especially anything regarding the paranormal. Uh, most tour websites we, we might not know about. Any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Haunted history tours. Haunted That's history all you tours. need to know is haunted history tours. And uh, they'll, they, they'll have every different kind of tour that you want to do. Um, they have a ghost tour. They have a vampire tour. They have a cemetery tour. They have a voodoo tour. Um, they have some bus tours that go up to the garden district. Um, if you're wanting to take a tour, that's where you need to go. Um, if you're looking for places to eat and it's your very first time in New Orleans, um, I mean, if you want to go to Cafe Du Monde just to say that you did, mm-hmm. those aren't your best beignets. The yeah. best beignets are at Cafe Beignet. Those are the best ones. Uh, but if you want to go to Cafe Du Monde, they are open around the clock, 24 hours a day. You can, And it's fun, it's fun to go. They're just not the best ones that you're going to find. Um, but you go to the gumbo shop mm-hmm. just because, you know, it's good food. There's, uh, what's that pizza t- place? Oh, Louisiana pizza kitchen. Yeah. I love that, that place. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can do. Um, but if you're wanting to do something paranormal wise, just go to haunted history tours website and they can hook you up with anything you want to do. Awesome. So I'll, I'll respond to that email too, Andrew, and, and sure. shoot you that information. So this next one is from Ellen. She said, not that they, this is a kind of throwback to a previous episode. She said, not that they'd want to admit it, but what about, uh, Madame LaLaurie's children? Surely she has descendants. Um, Surely she has descendants, if not in Nola, but sure in France. Just a thought. Thanks for the show. Enjoy reading the books and uh, web content for over a decade. Really happy to see your podcast. Um, we talked a little bit about her kids. Yeah, a little bit about um, some of them uh, that stayed in France. And, uh, of course, then she had the daughter who was still living in New Orleans mm-hmm. when she came back The there. defiant one. Yes, yes. So, And I'm not sure how much contact they had after she returned, but... Um, I don't know much about the, as far as the, the tracing the family on down the line, mm-hmm. maybe someone has probably at like the, the, uh, New Orleans history collection or yeah. something down there. They might've traced that further. I have not. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, constantly, I'm constantly meeting people who claim to be related to someone. Sure. So it's, it's hard to know, you know, on some of the stories that you hear, but yeah, I doubt they'd want to be. They probably advertising the name. that widely, yeah. you know, yeah. just in case. Next time somebody tells you they're related to so-and-so, you should be like, that's great. Can I get a vial of your blood? <laughs> yeah. And just yeah, right. see <laughs> how often that happens. Uh, so thanks for writing in. This last one's from Anne. She said, I don't know if it's coincidence or just plain old timing. I've just finished listening to your season of The Exorcism in St. Louis. Last night I watched a movie called Beckoning the Butcher. It's an Australian movie. Uh, so as it presented, it wasn't great, but it still gave me some chills. I'm listening to your new podcast, which I found very interesting from Spotify. So great job, guys. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. So thanks for finding it on Spotify. Have you ever heard of that film? uh, I don't think I have either. I watched an Australian film last night. Oh, yeah? It was okay. It was okay? I got a two out of five. Was it about the Nightmare Island killing everyone? No, it was was something about uh, these biologists who went out to the marshes to take... It was kind of like a take on... First, it was kind of like the Australian version of the crazy hillbillies out Mm -hmm. in the woods. Um, And then it became something else. Okay. Like this, just out of nowhere, this story about the, 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 
the history, the bloody history behind that waltzing Matilda song. And I'm like, why are they Whoa. talking about this? Yeah. And then here comes this killer that's, I don't know. The whole thing. I'm not going to recommend it. Let's okay. just leave it at that. So, all right. Well, we will. Do, I'll check it out. And see yeah. what. See what. Beckoning if you want to watch about. a good, a good Australian film, watch Lake Mungo. Yes, that's a great film. That is a great film. Yeah. And also, I apologize for calling Australia Nightmare Island because of everything that's going on there right now. Yeah, that sucks. It's uh, it's devastating. Yeah. But thanks for writing in. Uh, so quick, quick one shout out for a new Patreon subscriber. I want to thank Mark for supporting the show. That's one of the reasons it sounds the way it does now. Um, and we're able to bring you bonus episodes and things like that. So thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, I guess we should probably wrap this episode up then. And um, this, I guess, uh, sadly... Be the end of our pirates. I don't know if I'll have any more pirates the rest of the season. No that's more pirates part I don't two think or so. anything. No, no more. I think that's that's really our pirate episode for New Orleans is John Lafitte. So. Is he your favorite pirate? Uh, I don't know. Not really. Hmm. Um, I mean, I I do admire his business and organizational skills. Mm-hmm. We can leave it at that. Okay. But as far as pirates go, there's a, a lot of pretty cool ones out there that were, that are names you don't know. Although there's nothing better than reading stories about Blackbeard. Yeah. I got to tell you, guy was insane. But anyway, that's, that's it for this episode. So let's just <laughs> wrap that up. So guys, thank you for everything. Um, we do hope to see you soon at some of the events. Definitely dead a winner if you can make it. Uh, and please, this uh, last chance to get those t-shirts, uh, that will uh, that go to helping out the food bank. Uh, the deadline on that is just a couple of days away. So uh, please get on the website, uh, get your shirt pre-ordered, and we'll have it for you at the event. Or we can mail it to you if you are somewhere else in the country and still want to support the the cause. Uh, we'll ship it out to you as soon as they come in. So anyway, that's it for me, and uh, we will see you next time. All right. I think I'm just going to end it. Oh, good. This All episode right. of the American Hauntings Podcast was written by Troy Taylor. It was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each bi-weekly episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal, uh, reveal more about America's most haunted See, places. See, this is why it's too long. You can't even read it. unexplained events. So. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite... There you find your yeah. favorite shows in AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com where we also have show notes, more info about the episodes and links to more from American Hauntings because American Hauntings I isn't just a I podcast. It's books, tours, events, and more, all of which you can find on our main website at AmericanHauntings.net. And if you want even more from us, you can become a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, discounts, great stuff in the mail, and more. Thanks to our supporters, we have upgraded our equipment for the show. See how much better it and sounds? And continued help from you, we can dedicate more time and resources to That's creating why I feel even bad more when shows. People tell in the me they're future. starting over at the beginning. Take a I'm minute, thinking, check I'm it out. So sorry. We think you'll like what you find at Patreon.com/slash/AmericanHauntings. Be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, or just want to tell us what you really think of us. We're reachable via email on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and by Carrier Pigeon, Telegram, and we for Telegram. keep forgetting to add that in. Wouldn't it be great to get like a Western Union guy? I wouldn't know what door? to do. It would be awesome. I, I don't even think they do that anymore, but wouldn't it be cool? I, it, I, no, I don't like people showing up <laughs> at my door unannounced. Until next time, goodbye. So long. See, See you later. later. All right. Ugh. Yeah, I don't know what they, I think they just wire money.